Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Mara, Fern, we are excited to have you. We got a doubleheader podcast again. Um, delighted to talk to both of you. And we always love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who each of you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing. So why don't we start with Mara and then we'll go to Fern after that. Sound good? Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm excited to be here and excited to chat with you. Um, I have a really hard time providing my background, which, uh, but I, I, the way I explain it is sort of the through lines in my professional life have been sort of social entrepreneurship, education, and then local food. And I think of myself as sort of, I have the heart of an educator and that's, I'm really curious about people learning and growing and what I can do to build things that support that. And that has looked really different in different environments. I've worked everywhere from the New York City Department of Education to NYU's loss, uh, business school um, to you know, starting nonprofit and for-profit social ventures. So there's a whole range. I have an MBA and I also have a master's in education and undergrad religion, just to make it interesting. Um, and I first started gardening um, at the Mountain School, which is a semester long program in Vermont. Um, and I, I was a farm crew member the summer after I graduated from college. And then in the early nineties, I did school gardens and community garden work and then left all of that for a long, long time and, and came back, um, into that space in, in the last seven, eight years. So that's, really that's, cool. that's a little bit about me. I can, I can elaborate as yeah. you wish. One thing I'd, I'd like, do you say you had an undergrad in religion? Does that mean you studied like a bunch of different religions? Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, it wasn't, um, it wasn't like a divinity degree, but it was, um, studying religion. I traveled to India. I studied abroad in India for about seven months and looked at a Buddhist revival movement in India, um, among Hindus who had been considered untouchables. Um, so all sorts of interesting things, but looked at all kinds of religion with a focus on sort of Eastern. Really, really cool. All right, Fern, we're passing you the mic. Wonderful. Thank you. I love getting to hear a little bit about, you know, Mara's background and um, I'm going to take mine a different direction. So rather than talking a little bit about my professional background, um, I want to talk a little bit about what sort of drew me to this sort of work, which would really just be, you know, to be completely honest, my experience as um, someone who's Gen Z, right? Um, and my connections to climate change as I've been growing up and how that's really been at the forefront of, you know, every time I read the news, every time I log on to social media, you know, I'm, I'm ingesting all of this sort of, um, I always refer to them as fresh horrors, <laughs> you know, reading all these fresh horrors about the world. So, you know, since my youth, I've been um, very lucky to, um, you know, stay informed about what I would say would be climate change and have really used this sort of, um, love for, for deep justice, right? For food sustainability, for uh, local communities thriving, for indigenous leadership, for, um, for a just transition to, you know, uh, hopefully a carbon neutral society. 
really use that to sort of guide what I've studied and what I've done for work. So I have this wonderful deep experience in agriculture from the time that I was a child. Um, one that, you know, I didn't necessarily get to choose, but I'm really happy that that's what my childhood looked like. And in my teen years, I had a lot of experience with managing farms, everything from annual flower production to actual animal husbandry. Um, and, you know, in I've had this wonderful juxtaposition of experience between rural agriculture uh, and what I would say would be suburban or urban agriculture, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and have had um, just the, the wonderful privilege of working as uh, the farm manager for some time for Boundless Landscapes and really got to tie in all of my passions, you know, passion for local communities, like I said, passion for uh, food justice. Um, passions for, um, you know, sustainably minded agriculture. And so that's how I really came to this, this work, I would say, would be this really rich background of agriculture and growing up doing this work. Um, and it's been very lovely for me getting to see, like I said, having this rural background growing up in agriculture and getting to sort of transform that and tweak that into, you know, how does this fit working in these sort of suburban spaces? That's really cool. Where did you grow up? I grew up in rural Eastern Iowa. She's Iowa. like a legit Iowa girl. Yeah, you know, like farming from day one. Horizon was corn and soy for years. Wow. <laughs> That's what it was supposed to look like, right? <laughs> Interesting. What is animal husbandry? Animal husbandry would be the process of raising livestock. Right. I feel like that's something that very few people like have an appreciation for. I think they just go to the store and just see meat. Like you don't realize like it was a living creature that needed to be cared for for years. Something right. really, really cool. Yes, it is. And I will say, if you weren't introduced to that idea as a child, it can be sort of jarring as an adult when you make that correlation. So I am really glad that I was able to, you know, be connected in that sort of life, death, life cycle from a young age. That's beautiful. Go quick, ahead, Mara. Quick note on that. Fern, can you also share your special talent related to animal husbandry? Special talents. We like well, not those. husbandry, animals. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say you're. She can speak oh. to cows. <laughs> like, okay, which one? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, I love archery. <laughs> so she's like, she's like a prodigy. She's yeah. like an archery prodigy. Also. Very gifted with archery. So how, do, how does that relate to animals? Um, it's one way to take their life, I would say. Oh, right. Definitely. Yeah. It's a very intimate way, too, um, to be completely honest. And it's a, um, a very mindful practice out of all of the different ways that you can go about, you know, um, taking an animal's life. I would say that archery is one of the ones that requires a lot of um, presence and, you know, like the present moment. Did you go through like a course or like a program and become like an official American archer? Cause I went to summer camp and we used to do like archery and like, you would be like 20 yarder, 30 yarder, 40, 50, and then American archer. I don't know if that's standard or, or not. No, I didn't go through any programs. I really wish I had, and I still might in my adulthood. We'll really see where it takes me. <laughs> right on. You got to check out the new uh, Disney plus Hawkeye show as well. Ooh. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of arrows being shot in that show, but, um, Mara, let's, let's pass it to you to talk about, uh, where the idea for boundless landscapes came from originally. Yeah. Um, so it, I founded boundless landscapes with two co-founders, a guy named Sepp Kambar and a guy named Josh Tostason, both really lovely, brilliant 
people who I feel very lucky to have gotten to collaborate with to, to create the idea. And, you know, I think we really started it as a giant science experiment. And I think Fern's tired of hearing me say that, but you know, we embarked on, on it with a lot of questions and not a lot of answers and a, a desire to test hypotheses. And so, um, you know, I will say that I came to, I think like what is at the base of why I was interested in being a part of the founding team was uh, sort of humans disconnection from nature and all the negative impacts of that. Um, but what I would say is Boundless was founded to sort of explore uh, strategies uh, for creating a decentralized sort of micro solution to address a macro problem and or, or several macro problems. One of them, the most obvious and easy to sort of talk about is there are 40 million acres of lawn in America. Uh, and that is land that could be used for lots of other things, whether it's food or you know, perennials or other things that can be contributing to the ecosystem, to human thriving. Um, but we were focused on food. So 40 million acres of lawn in America. And the question we sort of embarked on was, or that we wanted to answer was, is there a scalable solution for turning, you know, residential lawns into food? And we spent a long time talking about it and hypothesizing and coming up with ideas. And finally we said, you know, we need to test this. We need to test all these hypotheses. It sounds really fun and easy when you're just talking about it. And when you actually get down and start installing gardens uh, and growing food and engaging the community, there's all these complexities that you can't predict until you just start doing it. So ultimately we decided to test um, the test, begin testing in Boulder. Uh, and that was Where in else? 2019. Yeah, it was a good place. I, Josh, who, one of our co-founders, lived in New York City, and we ultimately decided Boulder was going to be an easier place to test things. Um, and we just launched a pilot, and that's when Fern first got involved um, as our head farmer. And just to sort of, and we had about five different questions we were trying to ask about whether this is something people would be interested in doing, whether we could make the operations work. You know, just some really specific questions, and the the experiment or the pilot was designed just to test that. But all of this was just with a sort of broad inquiry around, you know, is there some way to begin to address this in some sort of scalable way? And we, we and I will note that we are a public benefit corporation, not a nonprofit. And mm -hmm. that that was a really um, deliberate choice because while our while the company was built really fundamentally on, um, you know, a desire for social and environmental impact, because we were looking for a scalable solution, we felt that a public benefit corporation had the best potential to allow us to scale over time. I just wanted to mention that. Well, thank you for mentioning that, because I actually am curious, what, what is the demonstrable benefit of being a public benefit corporation rather than just being a normal LLC? beyond just like a marketing thing? Is mm -hmm. there anything else that comes from it? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, eventually we have the potential of applying to become a certified B Corp. And so this is sort of from the day that we incorporate, we're making it clear that to anyone who wants to get involved as an investor or any, you know, or a supporter, that we are a business that is interested in developing a 
financially viable, sustainable model. So profit does matter, but that fundamental and equally as important is um, the social and environmental impacts of what we're doing. And so we're, it's a signal, I think, to say to anyone who wants to be a part of kind of what we're doing, that, that we're not just a for-profit business looking to maximize profits and, and maximize shareholder value, but that we're looking to have an impact. And that, that's enough. built into the DNA from, from the beginning. Right. Are there like legislative constraints for public benefit corporations versus LLCs? There isn't, you know, okay. so that's, I mean, that's, yeah. So it's somewhat limited in that we're not being held accountable for that. Um, and I think that's why the, you know, B Corp certification is so helpful because that adds a whole layer of accountability. Um, and, and at a certain point in a company's growth and life cycle, it's appropriate for them to apply for that. Interesting. Well, thank you for sharing. I guess I just want to throw in one of my own personal comments slash experiences when thinking about, I guess we would call it like urban agriculture. Um, I grew up in New Jersey and we had a lawn and my dad would always be like, Ethan, you got to mow the lawn and be like, the lawn is stupid. I don't want to mow the lawn. And I got in about 30 episodes or so ago, maybe 40. I got into this bender of talking to water conservationists, Gary Walkner, Ted Ross, Aaron Citron were all on the show. And we were talking about how water is like the most essential resource for life. It's extremely limited in Colorado. And we plant these stupid seeds of green grass that was a, like a cultural stylistic thing from England. And we have these just spouts that spit out like the most useful resource in the world just all over this stuff, just so it looks green. And like, I never thought of that. And I never thought of how much of a resource, not only now I know that soil is alive as well, not only how much of a resource the soil is, but like we could potentially be growing food and space on the land and we're using up all this water. And that just like horrifies me now. So I just wanted to throw that in if either of you wanted to comment on that. Yeah, Fern, do you want to comment on that? I will say that the lawn is a, is a symbol, right? And similar, um, I'm going to borrow Mara's word of it being sort of a signal, right? And there's a deep history behind the lawn that's actually very interesting. I mean, the psychology of the lawn and having a lawn is something that you can dive into on the internet, right? Um, and I'm not going to say that there is no purpose for a lawn. Because, you know, if you have a dog, there are, there are great uses for a lawn. Maybe if you have barbecues, um, there are actually more environmentally friendly ways to choose to have a lawn that a lot of people aren't told about, you know, and there are, are great um, alternatives to grass, I will say, in a really totally. certain climates, but there's a lot of progress that's been made in clover lawns. Um, so that's also something else to look into. But um, you know, so I don't want to say that there's absolutely no purpose to the lawn, but it, it really does depend on the climate. If you look at a climate like Boulder, Colorado, where you're high altitude, we're technically in a desert, right? Um, maybe growing this very water intensive, fertilizer intensive, and at the end of the day, um, petroleum intensive <laughs> resource might not be the best use of space. Right, and so I think it's important that we just start to have this conversation. I will say I used to work as a private gardener and a landscaper mm. in Boulder, and a lot of people feel very strongly about their lawns. You know, I have um, a family members who feel really, really strongly about their lawns, and it's something that was passed down from maybe their father. He really cared about their lawn, and then, you know, they taught them to care about their lawn. Um, but I do think it's important that we start to have conversations about that sort of land use, the water use, and then, if we are open to maybe shifting um, 
what we are doing with those spaces, especially for people who aren't utilizing their lawns by, you know, having barbecues or they don't have dogs or whatever it may be. All right. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to put the strong opinion on you, but might not be a good use of space. Like in the hierarchy of, of usage of land, like these, these stupid green grass plants that are sucking up all the water. Like I've had a couple months to think about this now. And I think it's pretty ridiculous based on the current state of the world, but I appreciate the, you don't have to go too extreme. And I try not to go too extreme in this show anyways, but I'd love to love to keep it on you and, and ask about, um, the idea of micro farming in general and how popular it is in the US and how you've seen it grow and all that kind of stuff. Of course, yes, I'd be happy to talk about it. So let's say if you were to Google micro farming and if you were to look up a definition, one of the first things interesting enough that will come to you is that it is supposed to be small scale. Now that's not necessarily talking about the number of people who are doing it, but it's more talking about the actual space that you're utilizing when micro farming. So most definitions would say, believe it or not, that it's under five acres, which is actually quite a bit of land to steward. You'll even see really thriving market gardens that are maybe selling at your local farmer's market, growing on a quarter of an acre to an acre at most, right? So those are technically considered micro farms, believe it or not. Um, it's this sort of, um, it's actually a very old movement microfarming is. I mean, I think it really started originally as a lot of suburban and urban agriculture and this need and this pride in growing your own food um, in different communities. Today, I would say that it's a movement that's more focused on um, smaller scale, high yield, usually sustainably minded agriculture. And it is oftentimes treated as a part-time job for farmers, interestingly enough, for those who are micro farmers, um, which can be very complex for the farmer then to have to navigate another job, um, what to do in the off season, et cetera, et cetera, for work and for income. Um, but I would say that within the United States, we're really seeing a growth in micro farming as a trend. Um, there are so many wonderful businesses and organizations that are practicing micro farmers. And there are so many homeowners who are micro farming and they maybe wouldn't call that, you know, maybe wouldn't call what they're doing micro farming. They're just growing enough food for themselves and maybe some of their neighbors in the summertime. Yeah, I would just to jump on that. I think, you know, I think the evolving definition from a boundless perspective is really, are people growing food on their land um, and, and or on land that they have, are borrowing or have acquired from others, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, I think it's really look at, cause what, what, you know, I care about is our, you know, this hyper-local food, people learning how to grow food, um, you know, so I think I saw some statistic that, you know, 25% of households grow food currently in the U.S. And that may be, uh, you know, out of, in a very, you know, in some pots on your balcony. Um, but, you know, and then you look back at the victory gardens from World War II. And at that time, 40% of the fresh produce in America was being grown in yards, in wow. schoolyards and in people's yards. So that's what's possible. And when you look at, and, and it was seen as a patriotic duty, it helped to feed people, it helped to sustain our economy. And so, um, you know, some people have spoken about the idea of thinking of today as an opportunity to kind of revive that patriotic inspiration behind home gardening. Um, so that's just another perspective is that micro farming could also be considered just 
small plots of land where food is grown. <laughs> you know? totally. And I think there's something really powerful about it happening within neighborhoods. Uh, because what happens then is that people see it. You have food in your front yard. The kids walk by your yard on the way to school. They see the kale going from this to this to this, mm -hmm. getting taller and taller. And they understand the life cycle of the plants just through osmosis. Like they're not, they're not studying in school. They're just observing it as they wander through their neighborhood. So that's another point of view on that. Yeah, no, that that's really cool. Um, that Yeah, that's like a good like cultural like, kind of feel for why someone would would be interested in doing that but I guess I'd, I'd want to ask on like a more practical sense mm -hmm. why would someone let's say for example I'm a real estate broker I actually happen to track like all of my activity I'm always trying to be as efficient as possible I know what I'm doing every 10 minutes why would I you know there's this idea of specialization where you do what you're best at and that contributes most to the economy why would I like someone like me want to grow food in their yard if I can just go down to the store and just buy it I have some ideas, but we'll, yeah. we'll let you take it away. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, it's interesting when you speak about this sort of hyper-efficient mindset mm -hmm. that in some ways I think it's an antidote to that. It's an opportunity to drop in to like connection with nature, to slowing down. And maybe that's not what you want. So maybe it's not a fit, but I think there's something really powerful that comes from actually just touching soil watching plants grow. It's an amazing skill. It's so it's fun. It's an amazing skill to develop, whether you're apocalyptic or not. Like we should, we should probably all know how to grow our own food. And guess what? Historically humans did. Yes. And now most of us don't. Uh, I saw some survey that said that 48% of Americans from this one survey um, don't ever consider where their food came from or who grew it or how it was grown. And so I do think one thing that happens is when you begin to grow your own food, it raises all these questions and also increases your appreciation for the farmers out there that are doing this work because you understand how complex it can be and what an art form it is to do well. Um, so I think there's that piece. Um, you can save money. Uh, and then you get to also, I mean, what we found with a lot of our customers is that they want to use their little piece of land in this world to be um, a force for good. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so whether they're thinking about sequestering carbon or building pollinator habitat or sharing the bounty that they grow, some of our customers actually, one of our customers this year specifically built three, had us build three garden beds for her. And two of those are dedicated entirely to donation. And one is to feed her. And so, you know, I think there's ways to think about how you can grow something in your garden that you can share with, with your neighbors, with your community built and, and with people who may not have access to fresh, healthy food. Mm -hmm. uh, Fern, would you add to that? I'll say one thing is that I, I did study psychology in college. And one of the greatest things you can do for a child is give them some sort of access to the natural world and natural systems starting early on in their childhood. So I also think that there's a real benefit if you have children or if there are children in your neighborhood for you to be growing food and sort of inviting this opportunity, like Mara said, for kids to really get their hands in the soil or for them to at least witness food growing, you know, for them to realize, oh, that's how a, a cherry tomato grows. That's what it looks like, right? It doesn't just 
show up in this, you know, pint container at the grocery store. It actually grew somewhere and someone tended to it. So it is wonderful for children to get to be um, involved in this process. I'll also say it's just... uh, if we're looking at climate change, it's a massively beneficial thing for homeowners to be growing their own food to really alleviate the need for flying food from a thousand miles away to your grocery store, right? So if in the, let's say if you're in the peak growing season and you're able to grow the majority of your vegetables, and typically what happens is even if you're working with a three bed situation and you have a hundred square feet total of growing space, you typically are still growing more than your household can eat in that situation. And so usually there's something called a bumper crop, which means there's an excess of some sort of vegetable. There's too many cherry tomatoes all at once, right? And typically that leads to people sharing with their neighbors or donating to the local food banks. So I think there's this wonderful opportunity there in alleviating the need for food to be flown in. And then also to just get to share it with your neighbors, sharing the beauty and really the bounty of having a home garden. And I do want to also add that just a note for anyone here who's listening to this and thinks, oh my goodness, growing food at home sounds like bliss. Why haven't I been doing it? It's also, it can be a lot of work, I will say. And you will fail at something. Something will go terribly wrong. (laughs) Something will eat all of your cucumbers or all of your green beans or Maybe nothing will germinate. So there are so many wonderful uh, mistakes that happen. And in that, there's this really deep opportunity for learning and for really getting connected and getting curious to why did this part of my garden fail? Um, so I really, I mean, I can't say enough how, how numerous the benefits are, even if the benefit is something that may seem like a flaw. That's, I love that perspective. And uh, one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is the idea of um, service being valuable or how there's this innate pleasure in fostering life into the world. And I think you, you sum that up really well, whether it's learning how to create something or being the person who created something and watching it slowly grow. That's really cool. I was wondering if you could speak a bit more to the environmental impacts of growing your own food on your own land. Because, um, you know, I'm the climate change real- realtor walking around Boulder knocking on doors and I keep seeing these we're carbon farming signs and I was like what does that mean like I don't understand what that means and I like literally until like maybe this month I because now I'm understanding how soil science works and I'm looking into carbon sequestration I really didn't know what that meant and now I kind of finally do so I was wondering if you could just speak a bit to how growing your own food can reduce environmental impacts beyond just travel of food And Fern, I want you to do a deeper dive on some of that, but maybe first I'll just, you know, just quickly to say, you know, we look at the negative environmental impacts and the potential positive, you know, the flip side of that. So from the negative side, you know, there's 70 to 90 million pounds of pesticides are used on lawns every year in America. So that's one. Uh, They're not, they're, uh, lawns are generally not supportive of pollinator life and habitat. So, um, you know, thinking about how, you know, what that means when we're, you know, 40, when so much land is being dedicated um, for crops that do not support pollinator life. Uh, Petroleum, Fern alluded to this, but 200 million gallons of gas are, I think that's used, but also I've read some crazy statistic about, about how much is spilled every year, just tending garden, um, t- tending lawns. So the lawnmowers, the leaf blowers, things like that. There's huge waste and huge use um, for tending. 
also the, the lack of biodiversity and Fern can talk to speak to this more. And then the water piece that you were talking about um, are, you know, are all things that we've con we considered as we launch Boundless. And then you know, on the flip side, these gardens can be solutions to many of these things. They don't, growing vegetable gardens, and, and again, I'll have Fern go, go into this in more depth, like growing vegetable gardens, especially annuals, it's, it can be water intensive too. So we're really careful to say that we're interested in water wise growing, like growing vegetables takes a lot of water. And that's just a fact when you're growing annuals. And so um, it's not necessarily that there's tremendous reduction in the amount of water that's used when you're growing vegetables, but, but as you build soil, that, that, that potential is there. And then also if you do it wisely, and then, you know, most importantly, the thing that you're growing is there to feed and nourish the community. And so it's, it's wise. It's a wise use of water. Fern, I'll, I'll let you go deeper on any of that. <laughs> well, so Mara really just touched on, you know, one of Boundless things specifically, like Mara has spoken about, is this transition from lawns to gardens, right? So this may be a wise use of space if possible. And we're not necessarily getting rid of an entire lawn, but at least a portion of a lawn hopefully is getting rerouted into some other use. Um, so she's, she's talked a little bit about, you know, some of the reasons that we were called to really start to try to chip away at lawns and how many of them there are. Um, there are, you know, and I, I think this, there's this sort of conversation about, oh, how do I lessen my environmental impact? Well, that's not necessarily the goal. Um, actually increasing your environmental impact might be the goal here, mm. right? And so we're not trying to just not have an impact on our ecosystems. And for homeowners, right? Whether that's um, an eighth of an acre or an acre that you technically own, you are stewarding, you don't want to have no impact on that space, right? Because if that happens, then things will degrade, right? And so we're wanting to have a positive impact. We're really wanting to be um, tied into the natural system there of that space, of that land that you're stewarding. And, and growing food is a wonderful way to have this sort of deep, beautiful impact. There are ways that it can be extremely beneficial. So when you're looking around town and you're seeing these people with these carbon farming signs, I believe that was a program done by EcoCycle. Mm -hmm. They're doing a lot of wonderful testing about carbon sequestration in lawns and compost specifically, I believe. Um, compost is just this excellent thing that is really cornerstone to being a home gardener, right? So you're going to need a lot of compost. And it's, it, um, where do I even start on talking about the magic of compost? I it's mean, pretty, I it's pretty spectacular. It is, and I can't imagine, it's just a very beautiful thing, right? So we've taken all of this decomposition, right? All of this matter that's broken down and it's turned into this magical nutrient wrench uh, rich, bacteria rich, microbe rich, and uh, it's capacity for holding and storing water, nutrients, and more carbon is just abundant. So we're taking that and we're growing vegetables out of it, right? Um, vegetables, I should just say, annual vegetables, like Mara alluded to, they can be pretty intensive on the ecosystem, similarly to grass, but there are certain things that home gardeners can do to really lessen um, how intensive their um, impact is in sort of a negative way. So 
Boundless is focusing on the sort of sustainable minded agriculture that is free of, you know, chemical or synthetic inputs. And the wonderful aspect of micro farming is that when you have that little land that you're managing, you have the ability to make these changes. You're not dependent upon massive amounts of fertilizers. You're not dependent upon a tractor going through that landscape, right? So you're able to do this work with your hands. Um, you're not needing to apply these um, fertilizers at scale like you would if you were growing, you know, 10 acres of some crop, right? You're also able to grow in a massively diverse amount of food in a very small amount of space. Whether you're choosing to grow in patio pots, which I do as a home gardener and as a renter, um, or you're growing in raised beds, um, or you're growing directly in the ground, you're able to um, really work with the space that you have and select a wildly diverse amount of plants that not only are beneficial for your home, right? You're eating this nutrient dense food that's coming out of your garden, but it's also beneficial for the ecosystem and the diversity of seeds that you're able to plant and the diversity of blossoms that are available to pollinators and the diversity of habitat and shelter for beneficial insects. So there are the, all these wonderful attributes of being a home gardener that aren't lessening your impact on the ecosystem, but are actually really deepening and increasing your impact on the ecosystem in a wonderful way. Whew. Mara, she's great. I and told really you she had to be on this it. call. Yeah, <laughs> I no, really said is... growing food. I think everyone should give it a shot if they can. <laughs> no, I love it. I, I, that's, that's great. So, um, if someone isn't, are you, are you all, y'all operating in Boulder County or just the city of Boulder at the moment? So we've been, we've been operating for three seasons now and we've just worked mostly in the city of Boulder, but what's been really cool is this last year, we sort of um, created kind of an a la carte menu. The first two years, we it was a very kind of structured way in which people could tap into our services. And it was sort of, you had to sign up to do this. And we did the installation and the maintenance and everything soup to nuts. And what we realized last year, and part of this was pandemic driven, was that we wanted to create more opportunities for people to get involved and to get kind of support and guidance. And so one cool thing is Fern actually lives in Oregon now and she's continued to work with us from there because we started offering online education and coaching support. Because one of the things we found, here's, here's actually a big sort of aha moment, which is scaling an operation like this where we go home to home and maintain everyone's gardens all season long, scaling that is really, really hard. But scaling this through education and support is actually potentially easier. If we can get more and more homeowners to feel comfortable doing this themselves and realize that, you know, for 100 square feet, so that's three raised garden beds, they could probably just spend about an hour a week. That's We've been you know, gathering data for three years now to see what does it actually take to maintain a garden bed or three garden beds. And it's about an hour a week. And so one thing we're really excited about is if we can help people feel confident and comfortable and supported and doing more of it on their own, that's how we're going to get more and more lawns converted. And so Fern has been an integral part of that. And so she's been offering um, online coaching. So these are like 15, 30 or 45 or even an hour minute or hour sessions um, where people hop on and they say, hey, Come, I have my video you know, on on my phone and I'm going to show you this tomato leaf 
what's going on? What should I do in real time right here in Colorado? I don't want to Google search and spend hours trying to find the answer. So we did that. And then she also has been doing this thing called Ask the Farmer, which is sort of a, a group support, a support group for home gardeners where every two weeks folks would call in um, and or zoom in and in a group, just bring their questions you know, hey, I have this pest, what is it? What should I do about it? My, this isn't germinating. How do I start these seeds? How do I prepare for winter? Whatever those questions might be. And Fern, you can see now she's great at answering questions. So she's there just answering people's questions. And we found that it created this really lovely community of home gardeners who felt supported and confident to do more of it on their own. Um, so that's a very long answer to your question about where our services are available, but it's to say, that we are excited to be able to offer them more broadly by leveraging technology. Yeah. Okay. Whoa. That, that's really cool. Um, I wasn't expecting that at all. Um, that makes a lot of sense for like expansion and re having maximal impact as well. So this has just been the last year. Yeah. We tested it a little bit just out of kind of um, COVID creativity moment mm -hmm. um, <laughs> in 2020 and then um, this year, we did it in a more formal way and offered offered these coaches. And Fern was one of our coaches. And then we had another coach um, who has a local landscaping company called Water, Water It With Love. Um, and Gail is her name. And she was wonderful. And so she did coaching with us as well. And But I think there's a real opportunity to, yeah, again, provide simple support. Because I think what I found is people are scared of messing up and killing things and having like a failure. Um, and they're scared it's gonna to take too much time. And they just are kind of afraid that they're not gonna be able to solve the problems that arise. And so we've found that this is just a really simple way. And we've seen a number of people kind of feel more confident doing it on their own with that. So that's a quick Can I note on that. Say, if you're a first time gardener growing food for the first time, it's gonna save you hours of Google searches. <laughs> if you do it. Yeah, you know, the, the Google search of like, why is my bean this way? Well, that's gonna <laughs> give you a really great answer, most likely. It's gonna take you a while to get to the root of really, you know, the whole system, what's going on with your whole system, yeah. Yeah, can you speak to your experience of doing this, this online coaching and how, it, I suppose, how it compares to when you used to do it in person? Oh, I just, I... I too was surprised by how wonderful of a format it really was. Um, and <laughs> I would leave these groups every week, I must say, with just the biggest smile on my face. The, the questions that people brought to these settings were so beautiful because, um, you know, I was learning from the questions that they were asking and then the whole group was as well. And it was this big sort of, um, I think one of the themes of Boundless is just sort of experimentation, which Mara alluded to earlier. So each group had this sort of air of experimentation and curiosity to it, which I think is really great because that's a really good entry point for really getting some deep knowledge and getting some answers that you never thought you would maybe get to. And I will say that farming and gardening, these are, these are systems that we're in 
right? And so if we just look at one part of the equation, like I said, why is my bean this way? You're never really gonna get this full complete answer of what you can do next season to prevent this or how you can really uh, maximize your beneficial impact in your system. But if you zoom out and you're really curious about your garden, you can frequently find that there are these different ways that you could act or these patterns or these um, policies that you can really put in place for your garden that are going to have this beneficial impact, not just right now, but for years to come in your garden. So the group was really lovely because we were working with a lot of first time growers who now are, are set up with the tools to really have this deep, wonderful impact on their garden for years to come. So it, it was really magical, I must say. And I, and I would I say, I, I think it's also really important to note that growing food in your yard instead of grass isn't inherently more uh, ecologically sustainable <laughs> you know, it depends how you do it. And so I think the support that Fern's able to offer is, okay, if you want to apply regenerative, organic, sustainable methods, like, and you find a pest, here's what you can do instead of, you know, going to the local store and purchasing, you know, whatever you're told is going to be most effective in killing that pest, but how can you create sort of an integrated pest management system? And, and, and what are the most sustainable you know, how can you think about compost or how can you think about building organic matter in the soil um, and amending your soil? So I think she's able to bring um, not just kind of know-how, but or the ethics. Solutions, right? Mm -hmm. We're looking at really like long-term systems change and how you interact with your garden to really maximize that impact. Yes. And set homeowners up for success. We don't want to send people home, you know, <laughs> having a, a solution that's going to help them for the week, but not for, you know, next season, right? And another, another part of the education we ended up doing is one place where I think a lot of homeowners get stuck is what do I plant and when do I plant it and how do I organize it in my garden? And so we also had this year, we offered a service where we had sort of a Google form that people filled out saying what they wanted to grow in their yard. And then Fern and a couple of other folks would actually create a plant. And once we knew the dimensions of their garden, uh, Fern and a couple of other people would develop a planting plan, sort of a plant by numbers plan for those <laughs> gardens. So it took the guesswork out of it for them, um, allowed them to grow what they wanted to grow, but allowed them to, to do it in a way that was going to increase their chances of success. So Fern was able to think about, oh, we need the taller plants on this side so they're not blocking the sun for the shorter plants and things like that that a new gardener might not know. Very cool. So in your first, you said three years of experimenting, it's been, have you found that there's a, a strong demand for this type of thing? And can you see this kind of project spreading around the country, whether it be as boundless or just in concert with another company doing something similar? Yeah. I mean, what's neat is there's, a, there are a lot of nonprofits and for-profits around the country doing related work. We actually had a group of, um, CU graduate students from the Masters of the Environment program do a capstone project with us in 2020. And one of the things they produced was a website called Turn Up the Turf uh, that, that. actually, cool. yeah, that, um, that documented and, and explored all the groups around the country that are doing similar work. So I think there is, often it's very uh, location specific and not focused on scale and growth. And I think that 
there, I do think there's increased demand. I think COVID has contributed to that. I think awareness of supply chains have contributed to that. Um, and then I think that there is a real opportunity. We're eager to just sort of sh open, share what we've learned with anyone who's curious, because we are, we want to kind of be of service in whatever way we can be of greatest service. And so whether that's us going and installing and maintaining gardens or focusing more on the education piece, we're open. Um, but I think there's a real opportunity for more traditional landscapers to potentially begin to integrate this as an offering. And we'd love to share what we've learned over the last three years with them about like, how do you price things and how do you structure things and what are the operations and how could you potentially, and then maybe provide education for them about how to do it in, you know, a sustainable way. So I think there's, you know, whether that's groups like ours going and launching this or, um, existing landscaping companies integrating and offering the service more and more. I think there's, there's, you know, a huge opportunity. It is, this is why, again, I go back to opportunity for scale. Um, if we can get more people to do it for themselves, it becomes much more affordable. It is expensive to go to someone's house every week and maintain their garden. And unfortunately that makes the service out of reach for a lot of people. And, and I think the power of this is when the ability and knowledge needed to grow food is accessible to everybody. And so part of our exploration around education and other support is how can we make this, uh, you know, available to as many people as possible, regardless of their, you know, income levels. I think that's fantastic. Um, I'm excited to see how you, uh, how you keep uh, pioneering the vision forward. Um, before we sign off here, just a couple more questions. We'll pass it over to Fern to talk about favorite memories from working at Boundless. And then Mara, we can hear back from you as well. Hmm, Mara, are we going to have the same one? Let's see. <laughs> we'll see. Um, one, oh, this might be my favorite, but it's one of my favorites. So, uh, in my first year of working with Boundless Landscapes, um, we had this wonderful team of teen farmer apprentices who were working with me every day in the gardens. They would bike from micro farm to micro farm and we had these little tool belts for them which were wonderful and they'd wear them on their bike and um, they were really helping us with a lot of the work and in exchange, it was really an educational program for these teens and um, an absolutely fabulous experience. And, um, you know, the transformation from their first day to their last day was wonderful. <laughs> I remember we were, uh, Bar and I were heading home for the day once later in the season and the teens were all hanging around the, um, one of our main micro farms at the time still, uh, just doing a little bit of weeding and chatting with one another. And they were all just talking to each other and the plants. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, the sort of relationship, watching them form this relationship with the plants really naturally. Um, you know, we always spoke about, oh, you know, be mindful about how you show up when you're in the garden, because as you know, this is a living ecosystem everything from the soil to the microbes, to the bugs, to the plants. They're technically alive, right? So we should be conscious about how we show up. We shouldn't be muttering under our breath, mad that there are weeds. We shouldn't be kicking at the soil, upset. And this was something I learned from a young age managing farms, right? Like it matters how you show up to work and it matters how you show up to gardening and show up to this relationship with the ecosystem. 
And we weren't necessarily outright telling the teens like, hey, you have to talk to the kale. <laughs> but, you know, by the end of the growing season, they'd all sort of come to that conclusion that this was a relationship that meant a lot to them. And that, you know, they wanted to encourage these plants to really do their best and be their best selves. And it was a very esoteric and <laughs> beautiful moment, I must say. So I think that's probably my favorite memory. Yeah. And Kale is a good listener too, you know, Kale's so that's always good. <laughs> Big ears. Of the plant world, really. Yes. <laughs> good. Mara, favorite mems? Yeah. I mean, I would say, I think what's nice about what Fern mentioned and then also what I'm going to highlight is it speaks to the fact that there are all these environmental impacts that we're interested in, but just as important as the social impacts and this sort of mycelial network of interest and knowledge and commitment that, you know, we've sought to build within the community. And so this is, you know, that happens through the young people that we engaged for the first two summers and we didn't have them this last summer, but they, they brought so much energy and joy and curiosity. Um, and then the other thing that I, I would highlight is we had, we had farm stands for the first two seasons as well. And those were just lovely. We popped them up in two different locations ultimately um, and community members would come to buy their hyper local food grown by their neighbors down the block from them. And the students, the, the teens actually ran the farm stand. And so they would get to engage with these, um, these residents, these, these, their neighbors and get to know them and educate them. And they were the people that were in a position of sharing wisdom with, you know, often older neighbors about what was, you know, what does this special uh, lettuce leaf basil taste like and how is it regionally adapted and things like that. And so I think seeing the students step into that role of leader and guide and um, to be in a position of being able to be these advocates for the earth and to take that role really seriously and then see how engaged that, how engaging that was for the neighbors and how excited those folks were about being part of this sort of hyper-local agriculture concept was really meaningful. Um, we ultimately transitioned this year to not having farm stands because we wanted homeowners to be able to harvest the food for themselves and enjoy it and share it as they wanted to, because in the previous years, because we were selling food, we asked homeowners not to touch the food because it, we need, needed to be sure that the food was safe to sell. Um, but what happened with that, unfortunately, was that homeowners weren't invited to get their hands in the dirt to harvest. So this past year, we experimented instead with um, leaving that food for homeowners to harvest or harvesting any excess and donating it for them. And then leaving a little note for them on a post-it each week that said, you know, here's what, what's ready for you to harvest this week. And then they could send their children out to harvest cherry tomatoes or cucumbers and enjoy, enjoy that piece of it. So that's just an aside to say we've be continued to, you know, evolve the model, but uh, the engagement of the community is a really important piece. Cool. Mara, you're my favorite type of scientist. I just love your experiments. They're, uh, they're fantastic. Uh, last question to kind of end off the podcast, and then I'll ask Fern one. Um, what advice do you, Mara, have for someone thinking about starting their own passion project? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, not to harp on this experiment thing, but I think 
focus less on success and more on learning. And, and when you do that, and it's a really tricky paradigm because it's not how we've been taught to live our whole lives, you know, but the idea that the failures and the challenges are just as valuable, if not more valuable than the successes and to be open to learning from those so that you can continue to refine what you're doing and do it better rather than getting stuck in, you know, this is what I know I want to do and how I want to do it. I think it's just creates more powerful, authentic solutions. Ultimately, that's the hope. Cool. Thank you so much for sharing. And Fern, when you mentioned the whole Gen Z climate change thing in the beginning of the podcast, dude, I feel you. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm just curious what your advice is for other like young people who are interested in creating a positive impact in the world. Mm. Um, find others who really care, I would say. Um, you know, I think community is our greatest strength. And I know it can be complicated to find community in this um, day and age of, you know, COVID-19. But I, I do think it's very important that, um, you know, you, you seek leadership and you seek mentors and you seek um, individuals who aren't always like-minded, but also really care and have their heart, you know, in a similar place. Um, and so lean into that. I think lean into community because it can only really amplify your impact. And there's so much to learn from um, from being in community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's more tools than ever to, to find your right community. Uh, so thanks for joining my community of fellow podcast guests, Mara and Fern. Anything else to add before we sign off here? No, no. I think that I thank you so much for inviting us on and allowing us to sort of share our perspective on things. It's, yeah, it's always um, delightful to be able to spread kind of the word about what we care about and why with as many people as will listen. Well, I I loved it. And it was a pleasure to have you and we're getting more and more listeners every week. So, and this will exist forever. So Mara Fern, thank you so much for joining us this week. I really appreciate it. Thank you. you. No worries. All right, everybody. See you soon. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.